Okay, so welcome to Myth Mountain, the first episode, first session. Um, my name is Lucy Morris Bad, and I'm here with my lovely husband, Gwilym Morris Bad. Where are we, Gwilym? We're in the hills between Cadridris in the north which is the, the highest peak in the area, and the Dovey Estuary in the south. And we're walking down a forestry track uh, down a place called Cumbrechiae, and we're going to follow the track round towards an old ruin called Pantaspadad. And today we're going to be exploring the concept of Myth Mountain. What is a myth? Why a mountain? And the the importance of place. I, was, I thought you were going to ask me, what is a myth and what is a mountain? <laughs> All in good time, my dear. <laughs> um, well, perhaps we can begin with um, the important question of why are we curious about myths? Why are myths important? I know we often think of myths as ancient stories from the long ago, but myths are a permanent feature of human culture. Mm -hmm. There are always myths. So long as there is language and human interaction, I'm guessing we will always have these mythic types of expression. They're like a deep layer of meaning within our culture. And, you know, often these are expressed as spiritual beliefs or philosophies or religions, but they don't have to be that um, reified, if you like. They can just be quite common, accepted values and ideals and archetypes that are just latent in our culture. So they're always there. Uh -huh. And I think because they're always there, we're always going to be inquisitive about what they're doing and why they're there and what we do with them. Could you give us an example of a really, you know, well-known myth that can exemplify what you're talking about? Well, I suppose the easiest is Father Christmas. <laughs> you know, and we, we, as adults, you know, and us too with little kids, we're very familiar with the whole myth of Father Christmas. But, you know, I think it's very illustrative of how human beings in general have myths that are just latent in their culture. They're, they can be the source of belief. Uh, you know, our kids, when they're really little, might believe in Father Christmas, but they can also be the source of storytelling. So we tell them the story of Father Christmas, but they also reflect behaviours. You know, we, we explain our behaviour of gift giving at Christmas time through the myth of Father Christmas. So, mm. you know, they, it's not just that they add colour to our culture, it's they provide meaning for the things that we do. Um, and they can be very powerful for the people who experience them, you know, in this case, kids. And also for adults, you know, we all get in the, we all get in the Christmas spirit. That Christmas spirit is embodied in the myth of Father Christmas, the great big red bearded man who gives gifts. And the magic that can exist around these things and the deeper meaning that can come from exploring that. They give a richness and a depth yeah. to our experience. And... They're also very common, you know, so everybody has a relationship to particularly, you know, really common myths such as Father Christmas. 
So everybody has also their own personal relationship to that. And it can be deep and wonderful and magical and enchanting, but on the other side, it can also be really dismissive or that's just a superstition or that doesn't matter. So the, the whole range of human responses is, is possible when we're talking about myth. Um, yeah, there's something coming up for me around the myth of Father Christmas. Um, and it was just based on a conversation I had with someone recently around the... Um, you know, the lies we tell to our children around that. And then suddenly, like at some point, they realise that, you know, something about that myth that hasn't been truthful or, you know, and, and I'm just curious about what your thoughts are around that um, in terms of this experience of myth. Well, I think it's a really good opportunity to explain to your kids the difference between what's real and what's true. Uh-huh. And that even though myths aren't real, in many ways it's important that they're not real. They're, they're not supposed to correspond to a hard, mundane, harsh, cruel world, although sometimes they do. It's more important that they contain an element of truth, that they speak to some truth about the human experience, mm. or that they suggest a, a possible meaning for one's life, you know, gift-giving. Mm. Love, community, gratitude, mm. celebration, particularly in the depths of winter where traditionally people would have been, you know, isolated from each other perhaps. Mm. So, so there's, there's a mm. human truth is, is the important quality in, in important myths, I'd say. Yeah, because um, one of the things I've noticed about one of our kids, Thomas, is him questioning who, who goes to a school where they teach um, Christian principles and teach about Jesus and him questioning whether Jesus existed and and therefore you know questioning the story and 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 the teachings and you know I'm I'm really interested in that as a concept in terms of like what's real and what's true because you know the idea of being compassionate and loving towards somebody and accepting people for who they are which is such a deep teaching of Christianity um, and the teachings of Jesus, um, being something that is worthwhile. I mean, maybe not always in that context for everybody, but actually for a lot of people all over the world, that's actually something that can be really enriching. I would always be very, very wary of literal readings of any myth, not only because it's kind of missing the point, of what, how a myth functions in human culture, but also because to, to claim that a myth is real is effectively imposing a particular power and authority on the historicity of a myth so that you can then impose those ideals on other people. Mm. So it's much easier to, to, to create dogma around a myth that you effectively say is historically real. And that's a, that's a politically convenient device for people who want power over others. Whereas myth as containing truth and therefore more figurative or symbolic, it requires dialogue, it requires conversation, it requires a different type of relationship to the people you're engaging with than mere power over or I am the priest and you must listen to me and I'm gonna beat you over the head with my important book because it's historically true. The image I've got in my mind around that is something to do with a the person really actively engaging with the myth 
rather than being a kind of passive um, follower and being told what to think and being told what to do and being told these stories are true and I am I have power and you listen to me kind of thing in that dogmatic way but being really open to an, a unique and individual exploration of the story or the myth or the you know the character yeah precisely one of the things I'm often stressing on on the Celtic myth courses is is to ask people to ask themselves whether they're using myth or myth is using them. Yeah. So are they engaging consciously and creatively and even spiritually in a mythology, but aware that that's what they're doing? Or are they merely being mouthpieces for a powerful myth that's been handed to them by someone else, for example, propaganda or you know, some political narrative to fear the other or what have you. Or even, like, in terms of, like, it makes me think about Facebook and Instagram of, like, you know, posting photos of yourself that don't really represent who you are. Because ah, exactly, yeah. that's the, what's, what's accepted, you know, or considered accepted of, you know, having a filter or whatever, looking a certain way. And then, and then you know, you've got multiple personas in the field... And it's really difficult to walk with that. Yeah, precisely. And I would say that's the that's someone being used by the myth of what we deem to be socially acceptable or the norm or what I should be like as I present myself to other people. So, you know, it's I think that's one of the more powerful and crucial skills that you can develop as you work with myth is mm -hmm. that you you really have to begin from a position of, well, what are the myths that, that, that I unconsciously buy into, therefore? Mm. What are the myths that are using me without me even knowing it? Because we are, you know, we're instinctively led into these positions sometimes by the culture around us. Yeah, so, I mean, I suppose some examples of that can be like social media and a political stance, unconscious agreements that enough people in our society have signed up to that suddenly it becomes an organism in and of itself. It's a really great example of a modern myth, actually, the mm. whole beauty fashion industry. It's, you know, really the evocation of some unattainable standard of beauty that actually leaves people feeling dissatisfied a lot of the time. Yeah, well, and also many, many other things, you know, yeah. low-level anxiety... Objectification, etc., etc. Yeah. Cyberbullying, blah blah blah. You yeah. know, there's so many variations of that, and it can get quite dark. Um, mm. So, just going back to one of the original questions, then around um, myth. So, how how can the study of myth benefit us? There are various degrees of the study of myth. We could have a purely objective historical view of myth where we try and understand a myth uh, as we find it situated in its history so does the myth mm. reflect people's behaviors at the time you know the myth of the great king and the goddess of sovereignty for example mm -hmm. you know these are myths that portray figures who are really embodiments of social roles so mm -hmm. there were kings 
I would say there were almost certainly noble women who took on the role of the sovereignty goddess. And the marriage of the king to the sovereignty goddess, you know, ensured the abundance and productivity of the territory, of the land, and so on and so on. So we can study a myth to find a historical reality, their mm -hmm. workings, there was a ceremonial role of the sovereignty goddess. Or we could study a myth to understand its, its meaning, if you like, or its <laughs> philosophy or the concept it, it puts into practice. There is another world. There is a realm of, of, uh, with a different type of time. There are supernatural beings. There is a, a type of supernatural life that's expressed through the natural world. You know, all these concepts are useful to us as human beings living right now, I'd say. <coughs> they, they seem to boil down or encapsulate um, quite complicated ideas and philosophies in really simple symbolic forms that are much easier for us to grasp. But then you could just also draw, draw on a myth for your own inspiration, for your own creative work. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that creative work, it doesn't have to be like a Nobel-winning collection of, of poetry. It could just be a drawing or a simple poem or a song or anything, really. You're drawing on a traditional idea or concept to create your own piece of mm. work, you know. Mm. And that, that itself can be a study of myth. So it's, it's everything from the, the super academic all the way through to the the you know the the enjoyment of creation mm -hmm. mm. and when you were talking then I was thinking about you know um just over the summer I I did a a painting of a selkie um and I in in doing that I, I had a look at all this other artwork selkie artwork and there was so much and I got so much inspiration by just like seeing like hundreds of paintings and prints and poems and books and just so many things written about and like created around <clears throat> the Selkie archetype um, and it was really inspiring see you know to kind of dip my foot in that little cauldron of of uh, Selkie creativity for a while you know Exactly. And create yeah. something myself. Yeah, that's a perfect example of, of a modern myth yeah. that's rooted in an ancient tradition. Mm. It's still alive today and it still has energy and, and vibrancy and it still has a story that we can use, you know, a story we can tell ourselves. Well, and it's still um, impacting individuals and... You know, the kind of coming through in some way, um, supporting creative process, supporting songs, supporting artwork, all of those things. Yeah, enriching. And, and, and maybe even more importantly, helping people tell the story of themselves or tell mm. the story of a part of their culture or community. Uh -huh. So, you know, seeing yourself in the story, weaving that into your own identity. And maybe not even personally, but your identity as a member of a broader community. Mm. Be yeah, because that um, makes me wonder about how people search for the myths of their land and of the, the place where their people were from. Um, you know, I know <clears throat> you have 
students from all over the world who study with you because their ancestors came from Wales or from Ireland or from these lands here. I don't know if you have anything to say about that. I suppose one of the clearest or one of the more obvious places we see myth is, is in our identities. And, you know, I don't mean myth here in the negative sense of, oh, it's just a myth, it's not real, but as in a powerful cultural meaning that's like a foundational, yeah, a foundational layer of meaning in, in a culture. And we draw on that foundational layer to create ourselves almost. You know, I'm, I identify myself as a Welsh man. Mm. And I can only do that because I grew up in a Welsh culture. I grew up in a Welsh-speaking family and I went to a Welsh-speaking school and college and all of that. So my, my identity, or a big part of my identity, draws on that. And it's the same for everybody. Mm -hmm. Even when we're distant from that culture, we can still dip into it because we still feel like it's part of us because it was part of our parents' <clears throat> identity and their grandparents' identity and so on and so on. So it's, it's a root that we inherit. Mm -hmm. um, and I perfectly understand the drive, the almost instinctive drive to seek that connection to our ancestry. Mm -hmm. it's, that really is what culture is in many ways. It really is the thing that we inherit from our ancestors. And sometimes we find ourselves in a culture that doesn't reflect that sense we have of our own identity. So we go looking for it. Mm. Um, and, you know, it can be a very powerful and satisfying way of, of discovering or enriching that part of yourself. Mm. I've certainly found it to be that. Mm. Yeah. How about you? What's your connection to, to these things? Uh, as in the um, searching for the stories of my ancestry. Well, you know, one well, of the one of the main reasons I married you was so that I could take your name. <laughs> Baird, you know, yeah. Baird is is a it's a Scottish name, you know. So I don't know how you. Well, there was um, I can I can tell a little personal story of um, discovering this book of old Scottish Gaelic um, prayers and songs, and they're called runes in Gaelic, <clears throat> so evocations essentially. Um, and there was, there was a man who went up to the Outer Hebrides in the 1800s called Alexander Carmichael and um, he wrote three books of these, these prayers and runes. Um, and and I've, I've got them, I've got them on PDF and it was really, really, deeply satisfying in my bones to discover what the people on the, on the Outer Hebrides were doing in those times, which was they were praying to the kindling before they put the kindling in the fire and they were praying to the moon and singing to the moon to sing the sailors back to shore and they were, they had a um, like a little evocation for absolutely everything but it was so based on place and nature and these little things like moss and kindling and ashes and all the, 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 the interactions that they had during the day and this man wrote it all down because he saw that culture 
going and it's gone now and he recorded it and um, I felt something when I found that because I have Scottish ancestry um, and that goes back and it's on both my parents my mum's and my dad's side so there's there's a huge amount of Scottish in me and um, yeah it was deeply moving in my body and so what did that little book of prayer and blessings and invocations do for you what did it confirm for you in your own life um it gave me a sense of um like a a sense of in some ways where i've come where i come from or where my people have come from and what they've been doing um obviously it's a very particular place the outer hebrides but um it just something in me had a knowing and it was like information that you know i think some you know i see some cultures around the world and they they pass these lineages through their people and and there's a lot of um they they carry a lot and they they pass that information down the 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 rituals the songs the ceremonies the the ways you do things the ways you don't do things and how you set things up and I think for a lot of people, we don't know those things. We don't have them. Um, and so something, yeah, it was like a piece of the jigsaw in my body was filled in and it felt really good. I suppose that's how it felt. So would you say it affirmed your sense of the sacred, perhaps not in some distant, unknowable, abstract sort of dimension, but in a sense of the sacred in the world around you and the simple things and the mundane things. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It really, it really did. And um, re remember when we went up to Mull? Yeah, yeah. About five, maybe, what, four years ago? And um, I went, I sought out a Scots Gaelic speaker so that I could hear how to say one of the runes, one of the evocations. And it's, it's, um, it's one that has, someone has put to music and I really wanted to know how it was pronounced so that um, I wanted to sing it really well sing it in the language it was written and, and in the language it was, it was created um, and yeah I met someone and she helped me with that and I've got a recording of her saying the words and it was so helpful to hear the language and and then now I can honour honour it in that way and and really connect with those people in some way. So yeah it does give me a sense of the sacred in a really simple way. It's like ah this is what some of my people were doing. They were praying to the kindling before they put it into the fire. Beautiful, simple, um accessible, you know I mean, I think we're instinctively drawn to this sense of the sacred, whatever it is. Why? Why? What does it do for us as a as an animal on the on this planet? Why? Why are we continually seeking this out? Well, I I suppose I can only really speak from personal experience and what I've witnessed in um, the places I've been. But I I, I think there's something around. The experience of not being separate or everything being one that you somehow 
need to consciously create a space to experience that. Um, maybe in more modern times you do, and I, I wonder whether you know those people on the Alpha Hebrides because of the way they lived and that it seemed like everything was sacred to them. There was a blessing for everything, so there wasn't this separation between sacred and not sacred or ceremony and not ceremony. It's like everything was that all the time and they were probably living that sense of the sacred. And I, 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 there's cultures around the world that feel like they do that now. And in lots of places, we've moved quite far away from that. So when we experience it, that everything is one, that we're not separate from nature, from the trees, from the rivers, from the mountains, that what we're doing to the earth is what we're doing to our bodies. and how we relate to each other is how we relate to ourselves and it's a really powerful experience and it helps us to be in good relation with all of the things around us. So in that sense, would you agree it serves a very practical purpose in that it, it encourages us to always have an awareness of what we might call a right relationship or balance or the ability to always know what the appropriate thing to do is perhaps? Well, yeah, I mean, yes, in some ways we remember how it feels to really, really take care of something in a way that is really taking care of it. You're like paying attention to what it needs and how it is and, how, and creating a, a space for it to thrive. I'm thinking about a fire and... and um, how you take care of a fire really well. It segues really nicely into that question about mount, the mountain um, and what, why it's important or what is the importance of the something like a mountain or the mountain. So I suppose I've been a bit selfish in calling the programme Myth Mountain because I'm of course referring to my own Myth Mountain that being Kader Idris here. And it just strikes me as a really evocative image. Uh-huh. In poetry and stories and myth the world over, you know, the land has a particular presence. And we, we find uh, a personality, if you like, in different landscapes. And for me, one of the clearest and strongest characters of the area that we live in is Kader Idris. So, apart from all the other stuff, all the other experiences I've had on Kader Idris, you know, we got married on Kader Idris. Yeah. You know, we've done lots on Kader over the years. You slept out there with Tomas yeah, yeah, on we, summer solstice. Yeah, precisely. So, it, it has a history for me and it has a story for me. But also, I think, evoking the presence of this very strong and ancient character in the Welsh landscape, I think it, it maybe is a helpful way in for people not from this area into the type of myths, if you like, that we work with. Mm. So I, I remember when I was in um, Cusco in Peru and it was similar. It was a similar story and a similar reverence of hearing about different mountains and their meaning for the people who lived around them, the stories around them and the names that were given to the mountains. And 
certain ones in particular were incredibly important and were places of pilgrimage and celebration and ceremony um, and you know I was quite young when I was there but I was really taken with um, the dedication of the people and how they they devoted so much time and energy and like their wealth to creating um, experiences around their sacred mountains um, or on their sacred mountains and um, I really loved it, really loved witnessing that. Not at the time, not experiencing it, um, but just having a knowing in my body of like, wow, that that has a lot of meaning for those people and I can see how it benefits them and impacts their lives and um, yeah. Yeah. It was powerful. I think one of the stories around Kader Idris for, for me is, is about time and about age and about how we locate ourselves in this, this vast history of the land, sort of the geological history, the geological story of these great, literally earth-shaking and earth-forming periods and then how we contrast with that the, the very effervescent and brief spark that we are in comparison to something like a mountain. Mm. I think it's a really useful story mm. that, that can help us, you know, find ourselves in, in this incredible cosmos that we live in. And, you know, the, the vast epochs of time that, that have gone before us and that are going to come after us. And how we relate to that, you know, I think it can be psychologically healthy to, to have those acknowledgements. And not, uh -huh. not just as a sense of wonder, but just as a sense of, of figuring out your place in, in the scheme of things. Where are we in relation to geological shifts? You know, where are we in relation to the turning of the earth and the planets and the stars mm. and so on? You know, in the past, that was part of Kadridris' story too, because it's the, it's the place where either the giant or the wizard Idris viewed the stars from that there was mm. I, we don't know how old that story is but there, there is a sense of of the stars and alignments with the landscape which is very ancient not just in celtic cultures but across the world mm. so it's a story of time and the cosmos and and cosmic alignments that that's evoked in in that presence of Kader Idris very often i feel well also on a mountain, when you're on a mountain, you're high above the vibration of busyness and um, chaos often that can exist within human culture. And you're, you're like, not like elevating in a sort of hierarchical way, but like physically higher than that, you know, experience. And, and different things live up there and you don't get the same... It, it energetically feels very, very different and, and can have a clarity to it that, that, you know, can be difficult to find on low ground where often lots of people are living. And that, that really is one of, the, one of the stories of Myth Mountain, I think, is that 
it is changing your, your perspective. It's, it's taking a journey in, a, in an imaginary landscape. And that imaginary landscape corresponds to all of the things that myth does for us, all of the stories and symbols and meanings it preserves for us, all of these old ideas that it contains that we're drawn to, that we, we kind of, we're seeking, that we're, we're trying to follow the right path up the mountain. We don't want to get lost, you know, we want to find coherent meaning. Mm. So it just, it was just a very obvious symbol to evoke, to, to draw on, you know, as we, as we try and introduce this work to other people, I suppose. Can you um, share a little bit about your experience sleeping on Kadar? and what it was like for you. I know that was a long time ago. Throughout my 20s and my 30s, I slept on Kadri Driss several times, and every time for a lengthy period. Uh, I think the longest I did was four days and four nights, but that was just in one place, and, and it was a what we might call today a wilderness fast or a vision quest or whatever you want to call it. But it felt like an opportunity to leave behind who I was in my normal social life and culture and try and, and find out what type of person I was without all of those things. Mm. So, you know, it's a, mm. it would be easy to make it sound like some kind of very self-involved sort of personal sort of story of self-discovery. But what I... <laughs> <laughs> what really happened was was that I I was far more interested in in what was going on around me than what was going on inside me. Mm. And that was that was the big thing that I take from all of those experiences really is is how how fresh and how clean and how alive and how uncomplicated the wilderness is. Mm -hmm. And and how yeah, how good it felt just to be part of that in a very simple sense, without anything else getting in the way. Uh -huh. So by the end of it, but by the end of, of the longest period I did, I felt like a lot of the noise and the hubbub had been smoothed down, sanded down a bit, just by the simple silence of the mountain and the weather and experiencing th simple things. Mm. And I found that very, very enriching. And it's, you know, it's something I'm gonna, I'll always remember that feeling. I've always got that feeling to dip into, mm. to draw on. But it really changed my relationship to, to being outside. And I think it's why I, I, you know, I have to be outside every day at some point. Uh -huh. As you know, my love, I have to walk the dog <laughs> for at least an hour every day. And it can't just be anywhere. I've got to go up into the mountains, into the hills because I just find it really rewarding and enriching to be in the presence of that uncomplicated rhythm of the wild, if you like. Yeah. And I suppose in that you're like, um, what I hear, and maybe I'm wrong, is that the, ex often the, the experience of being in the collective human sort of, you know, yeah, the human collective can be quite complicated. Um, and yeah it can be it's a very different experience um oh, totally i mean without going to my personal 
story too much, but you know, I, I had a hard time in my 20s and my 30s. I wasn't... Is that until you met me? That was until I met you, of course, and then everything suddenly got everything much better. Everything was great. <laughs> no, definitely, but you know, like I, I went through several very severe periods of some mental health problems when I was in university. I think I had some quite severe mental health problems at certain times, mm. and, and I didn't know what to do about it. And, you know, nothing against my friends at the time, but none of the people I was with really knew how to deal with what I was going through. And one of the only things that really worked was, was spending time out in the wilderness. Uh -huh. that, that really helped for whatever reason. It kind of gave me a strength to persevere. And, mm -hmm. and you know, I feel like I, I came through a lot of challenges, a lot of psychological challenges, because, because I was able to dip into just that other awareness, that other consciousness, that other reality mm -hmm. that the wilderness offers us. Yeah. I remember um, in my 20s, I, I did a, a kind of a vision quest in the desert in Mexico. Um, I mean, it was a vision quest, but it was at the end of a, like a month long um, being together with a group. And then we spent three days in the desert. But I remember like the anticipation of that and thinking that I was going to be blown away by this like awesome presence and like that it would be like all my cells would be vibrating and you know all of that kind of stuff and what was so amazing for me as someone who was born in a city had experienced you know lived in loads of cities and been in that kind of really like loads of people around me a lot living with people a lot um, was the serenity and the silence and the nothingness that was I experienced. And, it, and that was like, it wasn't a shock, but I was like, it's absolutely not what I expected. It's just this calm that was in my body. I think probably for the first time ever, um, after being there for three days and sleeping outside and making a fire and, you know, having to make a fire at night because the coyotes were there you know like it was it was a real study for someone like me being out in the wild like that um and obviously there were people kind of taking care of us bringing us water and you know over somewhere else have, holding a fire the whole time we were there but um and I wasn't afraid at all that was what was so powerful about it I never felt afraid when I was I feel more afraid when I'm in the city now i've got that memory in my body of like walking through a forest at night would not frighten me at all and walking through a city at night would terrify me on some levels because i know what could happen you know and it's really interesting to have the experiential anchor point in my body now for that and and really hold it hmm. i suppose it's important to distinguish here that you know in the in the work that, that I do and that you do and that we're probably going to keep doing in the future, the idea of Myth Mountain isn't to replace the actual presence of the wild, mm. but it's merely to remind us and to evoke it in the work and to, to also draw on those memories that I'm sure many people have, draw on those feelings, those sensations, the, the different 
state of mind that comes about when you haven't spoken to anybody for three days and you've just been staring at the, the same mountain for the whole time, <laughs> which is, a, you know, it's, it's, a, it, it's something very precious, I think. Yes. That, that is part of the story of Myth Mountain for me and, and it sounds like for you too, you know. And that it's like, um, it's like a reminder of what's possible in this world because life is hectic and life is busy and hard and you know we I know we both experience this a lot you know being parents to young kids and also trying to work as self-employed people it, it can be really difficult to remind ourselves that that that's there for us you know and I know coming just coming out for a walk in the woods every day sorts me out it does always strike me as remarkable and absurd that we live in a culture that never consciously helps people be people and that we don't take time out at any point in our growth, you know, from child to young adult to adult to, to just even consider how it is that you want to be in the world. It's like we're yeah. kind of just thrown into this crazy society and, and there's never an opportunity to reflect on who or what you are. That's yep. not part of the social contract that we have. Yeah. And, you know, I think that was one of the, the big stumbling blocks I had growing up was that I didn't really know who I was. So I was often drawn to bad decisions and bad, bad situations and you know, un unhealthy relationships. I came late to it, if you like, in my sort of mid-30s, when I met you, of course, my love. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I found, I, I felt like it took a while of going up the mountain, you know, actually and metaphorically, to, to arrive at a point where I, I'd finally figured out, I think, what it was I was about. And um, Can I counteract you with something? Of because course. Well, one of the things I was really t struck by when I met you was how um, seemingly much you knew who you were in terms of particularly being a musician and how that has been, that had seemed to be something that you knew you had to do from a really young age. And um, I, I was taken by that because I, that wasn't my experience of my life of knowing what I was doing, but... I remember experiencing you like that of, wow, you've really crafted something for many, many, many years with a deep knowledge of this is what I'm meant to be doing, you know. I just happened to do it really badly for the first few decades. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, undoubtedly. I'm not saying it was all doom and gloom, although I didn't have a direction, mm. but I didn't, I didn't have a sense of who... I don't feel like I had a sense of who I really was or much of an awareness of how I was in the world. Uh -huh. yeah. So I know that, you know, back in my 20s, I could often be quite vacant and not present and sometimes arrogant and not really considering how other people felt and probably a little narcissistic at times, you know, which is something very common in, in the music scene. Uh, you know, narcissism is never very far away from... A group of musicians so yeah I had a clear direction but I don't feel like I was doing it very well or doing it in a in a healthy or productive way mm. much of the time mm. because I yeah I just didn't 
I didn't have the self-awareness, I suppose. And mm. that's the thing that I feel was, was missing from my education or from the people who raised me, you know, nothing mm. against them. I love my family, you know, have a lot of love for some old friends. But we were all served up this kind of cold dish of, of this is what society expects of you. Mm. Now get on with it. And no sense of ever learning about yourself or learning about what was possible or, mm. you know, how to be in, in a good relationship with other people. Mm. And I think that's where a lot of the, the psychological difficulties I came up against came from. They mm. came from these wonky, um, unconscious bits of myself that I'd never been introduced to, I suppose. Mm. Yeah, I love that. Um, like you can be like a <laughs> a driven like person, very gifted and know what you want, but you're missing this kind of there's so many different facets to being a human that really thrives, yeah, and like taking care of all of the different parts of us is really important mm-hmm. in the experience of having a meaningful life as a human and feeling like we're, you know, feeling like sometimes I say, feeling like we're, I was going to say, feeling like we're on the right path. But I feel like there's such a cliche thing in well-being around that, like you must find your path and, you know, follow your bliss and all of that, which I like that. And I also think it's one of those sort of wellness bypasses that can lead to feeling inferior because you're like if you what if you don't know what your path is what if you've never felt that or if you've only felt it once then what what kind of a person are you so for me knowing a little bit about where you might want to go sometimes can be enough you can follow our journey up myth mountain on facebook and instagram or subscribe to us here on your favourite podcast platform. Safe journeys.